Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello, welcome to Basic Folk. I'm your host, Cindy House. Happy New Year. This podcast features honest and authentic conversations with under-the-radar folk musicians. I wish you best of luck in keeping your New Year's resolutions. Been seeing a lot of talk that people tend to give up their New Year's resolutions within a couple of weeks after January 1. I believe in you. I think that you can do it. Maybe one of your New Year's resolutions is to listen to all episodes of Basic Folk. That's an easy one. Regardless, on the podcast today, we have singer-songwriter Don Landis, who is originally from Louisville, Kentucky. She has spent time in the band Hem. She's toured as part of Sufjan Stevens' band. She has several albums. Uh, We talk about a lot of her music including her latest album, which is Meet Me at the River, which was released just this past fall. And it's kind of a more country album, uh, which was produced by a very famous Nashville country producer, Fred Foster, who takes on people. I think his last record he did was like a Willie Nelson album, to give you an idea of the caliber of Fred Foster. So we talk about that record. We talk about her moving to Nashville. She's just moved there in the past couple of years. She's lived in Brooklyn for 15 years. So we talk about her time in New York and her time in Nashville. We talk about her musical Row, which tells the story of Tori Murden McClure, who rowed across the Atlantic Ocean in a small rowboat. Don gave a TED Talk about Tori's journey. It is harrowing. Um, I will post the TED Talk on my website so you can take a look at that. Let's just uh, get to a song from Dawn. This is from her latest album, Meet Me at the River, my favorite song from the record called Traveling. And then we will get to our conversation with the lovely and talented Dawn Landis on Basic Folk. This morning, I didn't really have a plan. Right on the radio, 
This is really exciting because this is the first podcast I've recorded in my house. Ooh. Yeah, so this is the inaugural basement recording. Mm-hmm. Thank you for coming to my basement. You're welcome. Let's start way back when you were growing up. Louisville, Kentucky and Branson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about your childhood and how music played into it. Hmm. Well, my family was pretty musical, but never in the like professional sense, I guess. Uh, my grandpa played the violin um, and he was a corn and soybeans farmer in Illinois and through some accidents with machinery he actually lost two fingers but he still played the violin but in a sort of a strange way which fingers they were on his not his bowing hand the other hand like the fingering hand yeah oh that's hard yeah so I didn't actually see him play violin much but towards the end of his life he picked it up and he would play it at Christmas and stuff and oh that's good my aunt Nancy played the piano and the organ in church and my mom sang and um her grandmother played piano and my dad's side of the family was less, they didn't play as many instruments or anything, but they always had music on in the house. My grandma always had the classical music station on when she was cooking. And so there was always music happening. And my brother is a musician too, which is funny that we come from sort of not, not really a professional, in any sense, musical house. Like, But there are two musicians that came out of it. He's a jazz musician and he teaches, um, he runs a high school marching band program. Oh, wow. Which is intense in Mississippi. Wow. Yeah. So he had to learn all the instruments, but trombone is his main instrument. You know a bunch of instruments too, right? Well, I I have a bunch of instruments. You know, I'm not really proficient in any of them. I mean, guitar is my main one, and then I play a little piano, and I love to play the drums. I don't know how good I am at the, <laughs> at the drums, but I love playing drums. Um, when you were younger, what were your other interests, um, like sports or, you know, other types of art, and did they play into your musicality at all? Mm. I love to play sports. I loved climbing trees as a kid. We lived on the lake when I lived in Missouri. How old were you when the lake. you lived in Missouri? I was in middle school there, so I spent, we lived literally, the Table Rock Lake was our backyard, so... It was kind of that Dawson's Creek thing where you would, it was actually quicker to take a boat to someone's house than it was to drive there. You know? um, but, Do you know how to drive a boat? Um, I, I, my grandparents had a boat. I can, I can operate a boat. Know your way around a boat? Yeah, a little bit. Do you know the terms for boating? You know what's funny? I don't really, but I mean, I, now that I've, I'm, I'm writing this musical about a rower, oh, and right. I rowed yeah. in college, so I know all of that terminology from, you know, port, starboard, and bow and stern, obviously, where the, the um, north, south, and east, west of a boat, but most of the, no, not really. I have to look them up. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it would just, like, come back to you at all. Maybe. Yeah. Your dad worked in a coal mine. He did. It's it's a little bit. Yes, he did. He worked for Amex Coal, but he was an administrator. I mean, he 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 did have a hard hat and boots and a work truck, which later became my first car, which was pretty awesome. It had a CB radio and everything in it, Whoa. which was really cool. Did you have a CB name? I did not, but I mostly was just a voyeur. You know, I would like turn it on and listen to other people talking. <laughs> um, every once in a while, I would say something, but. I didn't know the lingo really, you know, just, um, it was fun to hear that. He was a arbitrator between the unions and the, and uh, the company. And what about your mom? She did a lot of, um, non-for-profit fundraising. So she worked with the 
Louisville Ballet and the Nature Conservancy and Planned Parenthood. I mean, she did a bunch of really cool causes. It kind of sounds like two different worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell who was the Democrat and who was the Republican in the relationship? <laughs> um, that one didn't last. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you're, where does your dad live now in Kentucky? Still? My dad lives in – yeah, he lives in Kentucky. He lives in Florence, Kentucky, which is near Cincinnati kind of. And my mom's in Arizona. Cool. Um, do you want to talk about politics? Oh, sure. All I, right. I'm not very informed, but I, I feel strongly sure. about things. So I'm mostly interested. Um, I heard you tell a story of your dad being excited about Dan Quayle visiting his coal mine. <laughs> um, so you must have differing politics from your yeah. dad. Yeah. So that was a funny story because I'm a huge Loretta Lynn fan. And, you know, I, I was excited that, you know, she comes from a family of coal miners and I feel like a kin, uh, she's a kindred spirit. But, you know, my dad said, oh, yeah, I met her once, you know. And I also met Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle was amazing. Like he was more excited about Dan Quayle than yeah. Loretta Lynn and I was shocked. How dare you? You know, I read about it afterwards. Um, I think she had some sort of business relationship with Amex Coal that didn't go very well for her, mm. I think, in the end. But. That was interesting. Loretta Lynn branded coal or something. <laughs> right. Like um, Willie's Weed or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, with your dad, is it difficult to do you just avoid politics altogether talking about that? We Not necessarily. Well, lately, yes. But um, there was a time when we talked about when I was first in college, like when I first voted. Gosh, that would have been 2000 or something. Mm. Um I talked to my dad a lot because I thought, I can make a difference. I can change my dad's mind. And uh, I think I convinced him to vote for Ralph Nader, <laughs> which is amazing. Right. <laughs> Maybe. You know? Yeah. In the end, who knows if that was amazing or a great idea or not. But um, I, we kind of stopped talking about it. I feel like, I don't know. It's hard. It's so tricky. You know? Now I live in a neighborhood in Tennessee where half of my neighbors are liberals and half are conservatives. And I feel like is a comfortable place for me because of my family. Mm-hmm. But, interesting. But I've been living in New York before that for 15 years where everyone thinks like I do, you know, and you're just surrounded by... It's like a utopia. Yeah, kind of. right, right. And, you know, so after the election two years ago, we had just moved to Tennessee. We had just moved to Nashville the day of the election. Whoa. We watched the election results in our friend's house and woke up the next morning because we, we hadn't got into our new house yet. And we were just like, where are we? Like, because Nashville's a blue dot in a red state. So we didn't know many people in town. And we were just kind of like, oh, no, like, where are our people? And it didn't feel, it just felt very, it felt very strange to just walk around on the street because it felt like such an emotional Mm. experience. And then to not be sharing it with people, you know, it was devastating. It was a devastation that felt universal, but then you're not actually... It's not universal. Right. Well, yeah. And you also have, that's so crazy to hear that you just left New York. Oh, the night. Yeah. That, that was yeah. our first night. That was yeah. our first so night you've in, just, in Nashville. And you lived in New York for 15 years. 15, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're leaving behind not only, you know, the utopian political right. world that you've been living in, but your community you've built for mm-hmm. a really good portion of your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That it's was very alarming. Too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But have you found your people in Nashville? Hmm. I I found some great people. I feel like um, we found a community. Actually, we started going to church. 
because we were for this reason we were like we did we need some like-minded people that want to do good you know it does and we don't want it to be a bitch fest we don't want to sit around and bitch about life like we want to talk about how we can do something to make it mm. better you know um and that seemed like a good place to start looking i think was churches and i mean there's a lot of dogma that i don't believe in. and you know there's I, I like things about every religion so i didn't even know what denomination you know or anything we just started going to a bunch of churches and eventually we found one that we liked and um yes yeah, so we go there now and 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 we found a, met a lot of friends through that did you have religion growing up my dad was Catholic, and um, I grew up vaguely Catholic. I didn't get confirmed because by the time I was supposed to be confirmed, I was questioning everything, and I I went through the whole CCD education, and then at the end, I said, "Dad, I'm sorry, I, I don't I don't know if I believe in this 100 percent." So, I, I and he was okay with it. He was upset, I think, but what can you do? Right. That's good to have that kind of relationship yeah. with your parents mm-hmm. and their. You know, some people don't have a choice. They have to do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. So what made you interested in uh, writing your own songs, playing your own music? My dad had this little uh, handheld tape recorder, and I think he would use it to, like, work on speeches, you know? And um, so I would take that when I was – I think I have tapes of me when I was, like, four or five, just, like, making up songs, just singing and random words about, like, butterflies and flowers and stuff you know four-year-old stuff uh-huh, right <laughs> there was one I loved that it was I had a cold and I was singing twinkle twinkle little star and my mom was singing with me and I don't know if she did it on purpose but we, we were harmonizing with each other which is really cute and I had a cold so it was funny that's sweet what was your first instrument that you played piano I took piano lessons when I was okay. like in first grade and then when did you come to the guitar not until high school I think I was a sophomore in high school when I I was already singing in a band at that point, like a rock band kind oh, of. Yeah. We didn't play any shows out. We just practiced covering in this guy's Sarah basement. McLaughlin and... Actually, we were covering Led Zeppelin and okay. like Eric Clapton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't the head of that band. I was just the singer and I, uh. you know, shook some boxes of macaroni and stuff like that. I was the percussionist <laughs> singer. Um, and that was a real edu- – I got a great education – by like, oh, wow, this is how you have a rehearsal. This is These are the parts of a band, you know. And um, and then I got really interested in it, and I started taking guitar lessons sort of secretly. I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want to suck. You know, at the beginning, it's sure. it, it's hard. It's hard to learn an instrument. Yeah. Your fingers hurt, and you don't sound very great on the guitar at the beginning. And, and so it was about a year in, I started taking lessons from this local songwriter, Danny Flanagan, who's a great guy. This is in Louisville uh-huh. still. Okay. Yeah. And then I started my own girl band with two of my friends. And then I kind of took what I learned from the other band experience and did that with my friends. And that was really great. And we played one show, you know. <laughs> we got one on the bus. Uh-huh, That's yeah. good. Um, so you decided to go to NYU in New York. Mm-hmm. Is that in the late 90s? 99. 99. Yeah. Oh, the, the very tail. The end. very tail. I guess, yeah, because th- that was my first election was, was I voted at on the campus in my dorm oh, in wow. 2000. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so you went there for two years to be a sound engineer. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to 
do. I, I was interested. I actually thought I was going to be an ethnomusicologist when I first started. Nice. Yeah, I took anthropology classes and language class. I took a what a, a, like Psych 101 it was a really great. I loved that. How and does that play into ethnomusicology? It, I don't really know. I mean, they yeah. have a general. They have a course. It's, it was called College of Arts and Sciences, and for the first two years. You don't have to declare a major. You can take, you know, I took literature classes and physics for poets, you know, stuff like this. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it was cool. Um, were you Alan Lomax fan? Oh, yeah. Love him. Tell me about it. I mean, the wax cylinder recordings and everything. I, I mean, all of all of the field, I'm putting this in, in um, quotes, you can't, air Listeners, quotes. you can't, you can't see. see me. Field recordings. Um I love the sound of that music, and I and I've always been interested in music from with in different languages and from different traditions. So, I I mean, in high school, I was going to see like classical Hindustani concerts, and like I loved Bhangra, and I just always loved. What's Bhangra? It's a Indian dance music. Mm. It's played with these. It's usually these guys who have uh, drums with these sticks that are kind of like hollowed out wooden spoons. And mm. they play. It's really, it's really fun to that dance to. Cool. Mm-hmm. And you have so much access to that stuff in New York City. Yeah, yeah. I actually started my first job. I got a job at uh, this club called SOBs, which was <laughs> Sounds of Brazil. It was a world music club, and I was their publicity intern. So I would help um, write the press releases and um, make sure the bands were okay. And that was a cool job because they had all kinds of music coming in and out of there. They had wow. salsa and mambo and rap. Most deaf came. Um, you know, they had like an R&B booker and a, a Latin booker. And wow. It was cool. Yeah, as a sound engineer. So you left school after two years and then started working as a sound engineer. Well, basically what happened was I had to declare a major after two years, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But I had started taking – I took like a film scoring class at mm-hmm. NYU, and I loved that. And that was my first exposure to Pro Tools. And then I um, – What year was this? Was 2001? 2001, yeah. Yeah, so baby Pro Tools. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I got an internship at Philip Glass's studio – and I was actually working there when 9-11 happened. And that was crazy because I was the only one at the studio. And it was this big studio with a staff of people. And I was the first person in that day. And I had to deal with the studio because no one knew it was going to happen. you know. So I was like on the phone with the main engineer from the studio and, and the owner of the studio. And they were telling me how to power down everything and save files and all this stuff. And it was like the apocalypse. Nobody yeah. knew. There were people literally running in the streets. It was crazy. Wow, that's interesting to hear how yeah. a yeah. production studio was affected. Oh, yeah. And people were taking their files because they thought, what's going to happen? Right. Like, I've been working on this material. I'm a, a literally going upstate. I'm driving as far away from here as I can with, wow. my, with my music, you know. I had a question about, so you are a sound engineer and also have production experience. You produced mm-hmm. most of your music. Yeah. Um, do you see a difference in the way a man produces a record versus a woman? Hmm. I have not worked with a lot of female producers. I mean, I most of the producers I've seen, having been a sound engineer, have been men. I think I've been in the studio with one... Yeah, this is interesting. Um, so I met this woman, Natasha Khan. She's, her project is Bat for Lashes. Her music is awesome. Mm. And, and we became friends, and she invited me to come work on her 
last record, Upstate New York. And it was so cool to watch her in the studio. That was the first time I've ever seen someone else, another woman, really. I mean, she had a um, another guy who was helping her produce it, but she was so in control of the session and she knew exactly what she wanted. And honestly, I think that was the first experience of mine after like 10 plus years working in studios of seeing a woman mm. knowing the language and knowing how to get her vision, you know, which was uh, really strange that that's the first time that that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've worked with a lot of female songwriters, but I think a lot would ha- a lot of times what happens is they feel nervous about the language, the lack of language and, mm-hmm. and the lack of experience in a studio. So they feel like they need to listen to the people who know about it. And those people are usually men in their band or, you know, somebody they've tapped to help them produce it. So. Yeah. I just have an um, interesting thought pop into my head about I was listening to an episode of Fresh Air where they were talking about the things, the way that women talk, the hmm. two the two things that that like young women do are vocal fry and upspeak. You know what that is? Vocal fry, the baby talk thing. Yeah, it's like, you know, you know just like it's it's like right here in your throat. Uh huh. You know, and then the upspeak is you talk like this. Ah, yeah. I I know I've noticed myself because I don't <laughs> normally do it. I think sometimes vocal fry just because my voice is so low. Hmm. But I've noticed when I've interviewed like certain certain men, like I will do upspeak. Really, you know? it's and I wonder if like if like a female singer songwriter in in like a this is maybe a tangent that sure. I'll take out later, but like <laughs> a female singer-songwriter like who is confident in what she wants kind of does that in a studio, hmm. like talks like this, you know? I wonder if that's just a tactic that women use just around men. It's so hard because, I mean, there's definitely sexual politics that happens in any workplace. And I mean, if you consider a recording studio workplace, and it was my workplace for so many years, mm-hmm. um, tried to dress as like non-gender as possible. You know, most the, the uniform for studio music, yeah. uh, workers is usually like black. You know, yeah. but that's not my vibe. I, I'm not, I don't right. own a lot of black stuff. These are black pants I'm wearing. But yeah, um, right, Dawn. I know, I know. <laughs> but I remember one Halloween. For Halloween, I came into the studio dressed up like a a lady, you yeah. know, in quotes. I had uh, high heels on and a skirt, and it was really difficult for me to do my job that day because there's a lot of kneeling and plugging in cables and uh-huh. getting behind a console. And, like, it was, and I was, you know, I was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. There's a reason why I don't dress like this, right. you know? But yeah. I've actually noticed that about your wardrobe since we met in like 2005. Uh-huh. You, I think, used to dress more like uniformly, like androgynous, mm-hmm. and now you, uh, your outfits are very feminine. <laughs> they, yeah, that's true. You know, it's funny. I used to, I loved Elliot Smith. And I still do. His music is amazing. And I remember thinking, I want to be like, I want to be like the female Elliot Smith. Like, I don't want people to judge me for what I'm wearing. I just want to wear my, what I wear t- during my day, which is like a, a sweatshirt and jeans. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to 
wear that on stage. And I thought that that was like a statement that I was making Mm -hmm. by just doing that. But then I had a friend of a friend. Well, she's a friend of mine now. She's an actress. She's very beautiful and a successful actress. And she she said, Dawn, why don't you just think about what you wear before you go on stage? You know, and I took a little bit of offense to it, but she had a point, you know, because that is a presentation and you are you are presenting something. And that's the first thing people see mm-hmm. when they don't know what you're going to sound like. They they judge you by what you're presenting sure. physically. And um, I resisted that for a long time. But then I realized that it it is it's a it's a theatrical experience and it needs to for me as an audience member it's fun to see something a little bit different mm-hmm. yeah. you know on stage I That's think interesting yeah. um so I am seeing this pattern of you over the course of your career reaching out to people to collaborate or tackle something creatively. Like basically when you want something, you go for it. Um, <laughs> it's true. So from what I know about you and your work with uh, the band Balthorpe Alabama, that's how I actually met them through you. Yeah. Um, and continue, you continued like, to play with a couple, Annie and Josh mm-hmm. from, from Balthrop. Mm-hmm. You like to make friends through music. You like to collaborate. You were a part of Hem for a while mm-hmm. and toured with Sufjan Stevens. Um so that's that's how I think about you. And then I read this comment that when you moved to New York, and I might be like reading into this way sure, too much. Sure. When you moved to New York, you were too nervous or too nerdy to reach out to the players in the anti-folk scene in the early 2000s, like Moldy Peaches and Regina Spector. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, yeah, well, my very first year in New York, I didn't play out at all, which was weird because I thought that that's what I would do. I thought I'm moving to New York for music. I don't know anybody here. And I had been playing open mics in, in Kentucky and playing music with lots of different people. And and I just found it, I think it was just sort of a shock to my system, I, the whole experience of living in a huge city. Yeah. Culture shock. Culture shock. Yeah. And I mean, I, I didn't even take the subway. I just, you know, and also, I mean, I was a really good student, so I was really obsessed with you my homework. And I was rowing. I was rowing every morning at 5 a.m. So I had no social life. I went to bed at like 10 p.m. and woke up at 5 oh, wow. to go rowing okay. every morning. So, yeah, my social life was a little different. And it's hard to – music doesn't happen in the mornings, you know. Right. Music world happens at night. So I think I missed out on a lot of that that first year. But then, yeah, I started going to the Sidewalk Cafe and playing there and going to their open mics, and that was really cool. And I met some people through that. But it just took me a little while to get into that, I think. So there wasn't – it just seems like a scheduling issue. And a little bit of culture shock. Yeah. I mean, I did – I remember – I'm trying to think. I did reach out. I remember making a flyer because uh, NYU also was such a huge school. It, all the classes had like hundreds of people in them and it was really hard to meet people that way. I mean, I was really close, best friends with my roommate. But she didn't play music. She was mm-hmm. um, an artist and we hung out all the time and she was on the crew team. And, you know, we just – she was like my friend that we just walked around everywhere together and – so I made a flyer. I remember I was like, I want to play music with people. I need to make music friends because also I wasn't in the music program. So I wasn't taking any music classes at that point, mm-hmm. which you were just I like should have done. You know, musicologist rower. Right. Well, I was working at a, a music club. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, so at I was SOBs. meeting a lot of older people who mm-hmm. liked world music, but they weren't really my friends, friend group. 
Yeah, I made a flyer, and I remember it had a scene from some Charlie Chaplin movie where they're like working on the the belt with at the factory, and um, I just took a still of that and I said like, "Who wants to play music or something like that?" You know, and <laughs> like looking for musicians, and it was very vague. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't even know if I put my influences on there, and you know, I put like my name and number, and I put it in the like music hall. Like is it like music a tear, head hall. Uh-huh. tear away flyer? A little tear away. And no one called me, you know, and I was oh. like, oh, what am I going to do? And I actually had an ex- a terrible experience where um, I met this guy and I think he just wanted, he was interested in me, you know, and mm. pretended like he wanted to play music with me and that sucked. So. Was there a time where you felt yourself actually being a part of a musical community in New York, like when the, when that mm-hmm. stuff kind of melted away. That happened for me when I discovered Fast Folk, when I discovered the Jack Hardy yeah. Songwriters Exchange. I didn't know that you were part of Fast Folk, and I am very impressed. Oh, well, yeah. thank you. <laughs> so if you don't know about Fast Folk, it's um, been around forever, and um, I don't even know who started it. Did Jack start it? I'm not sure. I, that sounds right to me. It was like a, a zine, basically. Right? It like was a well. It was a, It was a. It was an event. They used to host it in different clubs in Greenwich Village, and I think in the '60s, even as far back as the '60s. Yeah. And it would be like an open mic, kind of a curated open mic, mm-hmm. and people would write new songs, and they would re- perform very new material for other songwriters and talk about their songs. And but by the time that I got there, oh, and the Smithsonian Folkways released a bunch of the recordings mm-hmm. of those sessions because a lot of famous people ended up. They weren't famous at the time, yeah. but you know, the but whole Suzanne folk, Vega is the one that yeah. Comes so to she, mind. I mean, Towns Van Zant went there. Like, um, gosh, so many songwriters of all ilks. Sean Colvin, probably yeah. yeah. Any uh, songwriter you can think of. No, but there's. T- <laughs> I mean, really, like Richard Julian, like all kinds of people. Yeah. And that's just in the later years. There were people earlier, too. Um, I think Dave Van Ronk was a part of that scene. Um, Sounds you know? right, yeah. So, but by the time I discovered it, it was like 2001. And I read an article about Jack Hardy in the New York Times because I think the article was about his – he had this little apartment in Greenwich Village. And they were, his landlords were trying to kick him out. And so he was trying to do a fundraiser because of the fast folk stuff, because that's where all the meetings took place at his house. And so Suzanne Vega did a fun, did did a benefit concert for him. And I didn't go to the concert, but the venue, um, oh, what's the name of that venue? It was right near NYU. It's, it's gone now, but they used to have two shows a night. Um, anyway, she did a, a benefit at this place and I went to the place and I said, Hey, do you happen to know I'm trying to get in touch with Jack Hardy. I'd like to go to that songwriters thing. And the owner of the club gave me his address and told me that it happened on Monday nights and I should just go. So I didn't have an invitation. I just kind of stalked it my way in and rang the doorbell and I arrived and people were looking at me like, who is this person? You know, but it was fine. It was very open. But I was definitely the youngest person there by like 10 years, maybe 15, 20 years. And that was my community. That became my community. All of those writers. I mean, but Suzanne Vega was part of that group. And that's Mm -hmm. and she really helped me. She got me my help me get my first internship in Philip Glass's studio. She was working on her album there and she took me on tour and 
yeah, it was amazing. Sweet. Like a mentor. Mm -hmm. That's great. As someone who has changed courses in in life, did you ever feel afraid uh, that you would not be able to have, like, the things that you wanted in life? I mean, I'm sure you've come to crossroads in your life at certain times, but, like, bigger some crossroads are bigger than others where did uncertainty play in in those choices for you hmm. well the for me the move to nashville was a big crossroads and uh not just that but also i got pregnant and got married and moved all in the same year and i was at a huge crossroads before that and i wrote a song called What Will I Do that's on my new record. And it's it's basically for anyone at a crossroads. And I wrote it for myself. I wrote it for my dad, who had just retired and wasn't sure if he wanted to move. He wasn't sure what he was going to do, where he was going to go. Uh, that was a big life change for him. I wrote it for my friend Danica, who couldn't decide if she wanted to have kids. you know. And, and I think for myself, for that reason, too, I wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to change something. And I was at at the precipice, but I wasn't sure what to do. And, and that's when I wrote that song. It's funny. Did it help? Oh, yeah. Totally yeah. helped. I mean, and at the end of the song, it, the whole song is questioning what's going to happen. What will I do? I don't know. What's going to happen? And then at the very end of the song, I kind of say, so what if I do? You know, so, and then I do. I do it. So awesome. do the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so Creighton? Creighton is my husband, yes. He's your husband, and he writes musicals. He does. Um, how did he feel about, I mean, how did you both feel about leaving New York behind, particularly leaving Broadway behind, leaving the theater scene behind? Yeah. Well, he moved from North Carolina to New York to do an MFA program at NYU for musical theater. So we missed each other. I was I went there for undergrad years before that. But, you know... Musical theater is even harder than touring as a singer-songwriter because to put up a musical, you need a lot of money and a lot of support from an institution, you know. So it's he's written a lot of musicals, but I think he he's really found a niche for himself m introducing young people to music making and theater, and um, he's just so creative and he's so good with kids. Uh, so now he's started a music program in Nashville um, for kids, and it's it's going really well. Is it independent or part of an organization? It's part of a charter school. Wow. So yeah. it's a high school? Middle school. Middle school. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But And then we wrote a musical together last year, which is crazy. Uh, we got a commission. It was very Waiting for Guffman, if you've ever seen that movie. <gasps> oh, yes. Yeah, we, <laughs> we got a commission from the city of Nashville to write about the centennial celebration of our neighborhood, which is called Old Hickory. Oh, that really is Waiting for Guffman. It Guffin. is 100% Waiting for <laughs> Guffman. We cast it. There were 20 people in the cast. We cast it mostly from people in the neighborhood. Did it in a little black box theater for the centennial celebration. We were in the parade. You know, waving, you know, with our costumes on. And we and it was all based on real people from the town. Were is, you in the musical? Yeah, we wrote ourselves in. And the first scene in the musical is the two of us buying our house, you know, like walking up to the house and being like, oh, what is this? The historical home. What, why is it historical? When was it built? You know, and then dun, 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 dun. And then you go back in time 100 years to World War One when all the homes were built wow. for the war. Yeah. That was not your first experience with a musical. You brought it up earlier, but you wrote a musical called Row, mm -hmm. 
Did you write it in 2015? It's, I'm still writing it. That's the thing. Musical theater takes a long time. Um, I've written probably about 35 songs for this show, and we keep changing it, and we keep... So it's had... I first... We got a, my partner, Danny, Danny Goldstein, who's writing the book, which is the sort of the, the dialogue between the actors and how the scenes move and everything, but I wrote the music and the lyrics. Yeah, it's evolved. We we optioned this woman's memoir, and she's from Louisville, Kentucky, Tori McClure, and her book is beautiful. And I did a TED Talk about it, which is really cool, and she let me use video footage that she took. Harrowing oh, video. Oh, harrowing. Yes. Yeah. Did you she, So you only show a handful of clips, but did you watch all of the I videos? I watched hours and hours and hours of videotape of her talking to herself on in the middle of the ocean. She wow. gave me, I think like 15 DVDs full, you know, what is that, an hour, 15 hours? 15 hours yeah. at least. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, why did you want to write a musical about her story? Uh, it's funny. Well, I, I had never really thought about writing a musical until Danny Goldstein approached me, and we had some mutual friends, and he was a fan of my music, and he, we just he took we went to lunch, and he said, hey, do you want to write a musical? Have you ever thought about that? And I said no I've never thought about that but that sounds cool what do you want to write about and then we just started sharing ideas and I had just read Tori's memoir because I'm from Louisville and it took her 10 years to write it so she wrote across the ocean in 1999 and then she wanted to write her own story so it took her 10 years she went and got her MFA in creative writing now she's the president of the university where she got her MFA oh my gosh she sounds incredible she is amazing I can see why you wanted to write mm-hmm. a musical about yeah, it. Yeah, she's a. Con- I mean, she's she's insane. Not just a physical feat, you know, to row across an ocean. She also hiked to the South Pole. She was the first woman. Wow. To, uh, there was a team. It was her and another woman. <sighs> that's the kind of life where you look at her accomplishments oh. and then you're like, "What am I doing?" <laughs> right, but see, that's the th- that's the feeling that the show gives people. We've we've never performed it fully on a stage with like choreography and costumes and everything but we've done several iterations of it as readings where there's 10 actors and they all sing and it's really powerful to to write for 10 voices i've never Mm. really gotten to do that before and it's fun get to write songs for guys to sing and for like a trio of ladies they're sassy to sing and like for the whole ensemble to sing together it's really cool so i'm very excited for that and it's got there's some momentum happening we did uh a thing uh conference called NAMT, National Association of Musical Theater, where they presented the show, the first 45 minutes of the show. And it was so great in New York. And then Playwrights Horizons is doing a reading of it. So it's it's got some people are interested in. And, and, and what happens is people see this story, we tell the story, and they feel inspired to go out and do something with their life. Mm. And that's what I want to give people. I want people. I want to give that to people. I want yeah. people to feel like that what you should feel like i think you know yeah yeah i want to talk about your songwriting a little bit sure um so you have a pretty extraordinary range in your song so you have this wonderful light touch that floats along that i think has always been in you but you also have this interesting darkness in in some of your songs and i actually haven't I don't I could be wrong but I haven't heard it on the last few albums like last night you did Bodyguard mm-hmm. and I thought like that's a side of Dawn that's like super cool um, <laughs> but what's going on with the you know do you, do you know what I'm referring to and then what's mm. going on with that darkness 
Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like mm, in the past, mostly when I wrote songs, I mean, there's no one way to write a song, but a lot of times I would be writing to comfort myself because I felt upset about something or conflicted about something. And I mean, I still do that. What will I do? That song was Mm -hmm. because I felt conflicted about what what was happening in my life. But uh, I think I'm maybe a little happier now. I know I feel a little more settled. Uh, and, And also my new album... I had a producer on it, and so he helped choose the songs. There were some pretty dark songs that didn't end up on my new album because Fred didn't think that they worked as much as the other ones, you know. And I did a lot of co-writing, and I think typically when you co-write, for me as a person, I tend not to go dark when I have another person in the room. Why is that? Because I I love people, and I love life, and I'm, I'm very joyful, but... With other people, I feel like it's it's more it's easier to be joyful. Are you an extrovert? I think so. Yeah, I'm like an extrovert introvert. I'm sure. a weird combination of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I like both sides. Oh, of good, Don. Thanks. But, like <laughs> when you played Bodyguard last night, I was like, yes, hey, um, <laughs> country music songwriting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Keep it simple. How do you feel about Keep keeping it simple. it simple? I love it. I think the best. My, I feel like my best songs are the ones that say something simply. When you get too verbose and too even flowery with your imagery, like even one image, like one strong image, that's all you need because that's the thing that stays in someone's mind, you know. I like country music. I like the, the twist of wor- wor- the wordplay and the... Uh, the sort of tongue-in-cheekness about it. And also the, I mean, country songs are, you know, you can cry to them and it's okay. That's the, yeah, that's the idea, you know? I don't know. I wanted to talk about feminism. Okay. And from my perspective, you have been called songstress, songbird, like very weird feminine labels (laughs) and also you've experienced an interesting progression being active in music both on the production side and performing side since the late 90s where feminism from in my opinion was going through a really weird phase like people are trying to distance themselves from the word Uh Um, what has been your experience with feminism and how have you seen it progress over the years hmm well, I mean, I, I have the Riot Girl movement to thank for my first band that I started with my girlfriends. I mean, we listened to a lot of Slater Kenny, and we were very influenced by that scene and musically, so that was very helpful, you know. Uh, and then I kind of didn't have the community of women musicians when, in New York. I didn't find a community of – I mean, eventually I did, but – uh, and then eventually later I started a girl band with my friends Annie and Lauren, and that was really fun. And, and I find making music with women is so great, and I, I seek it out now more than I ever have before. Uh, but it is, from my perspective, and I think most people can say this, a man's world. The music world is mostly touring men. Men are touring more than women. And... 
there are more men on in bands, I think, on stage. I mean, I've I'm saying this as a person who've I've done a lot of live sound. I I worked in I worked at Tonic. I worked at Mo Pickens. I did sound on tours for people. And my experience is that in the live music world and in the recording music world, it's it's mostly guys playing the music and with occasional women singers and occasional women instrumentalists peppered in there. But and I think that's unfortunate. Like and it cause it, it causes a dynamic that is not uh, a great warm environment for women, I think, creating. Mm-hmm. And not that men are bad or that anything, or even that they're trying to uh, distance women from, from getting into the world. But Don't it, you think the system is sort of stacked against women and minorities in general? So if there's a lack of women performing, it's just because it's systematic. I mean, that's very complicated. Oh, no, I definitely do. I mean, have you seen the the flyer that has been kicking around? Or it's it's like a – I follow this on Twitter. They they take the – they take uh, posters for festivals and they take out the names of the men. Mm-mm. It's like that famous photo um, of the diplomats and then you take out all the men and there's like one woman standing there. Right. Um and it's the same thing, and it's it's so striking when you see this. It's like a country music, especially, mm. um, even though there are a lot of incredible country music women, like Miranda Lambert, I think is sure. amazing. Dolly Parton. I mean, there's so many great women singers, but they're not carrying festivals. They're not headlining as much as the guys. So, to, I mean, and it's not just country music. It's all kinds of festivals and all uh, all genres. But to see that, you just it's just shocking. Mm. And these are not even women headlined bands. These are bands with women in them at all. Yeah. And it's just a, such a small percentage. Do you think about this stuff now that you have a daughter? Yeah, for sure. Uh, she's so young still that I haven't, I'm just glad that she can't really like listen to the news. You haven't, you know? written, <laughs> you haven't written like her 25 year plan. Right. Or anything no, yet. no. And it's really cool to have a, a baby. Also, it's funny because she um, she doesn't have a lot of hair, and people often think she's a boy, which is fine. I mean, because babies, you can't really right. tell if they're a girl or a boy. I mean, back in the day, people didn't even have gender clothes for their kids. Every baby wore like a white dress because that's just what they wore. Like a hundred years yeah, ago. Yeah. 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 Um, and it was a marketing tactic. I read, I read an article about this. Like, you know, they could sell more clothes if they made them into boys and girls clothes Ooh. for infants, you know? Yeah. And that's where it all starts. That's where it all starts to go wrong. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so, I mean, yeah, it has made me more aware, but honestly, like she, she has, she doesn't have, I don't think of her. She's just a baby. You know, I don't think yeah. of her as a boy or a girl necessarily. She's just this beautiful young creature. Yeah. And I think it will be a little bit heartbreaking when we have to do, start doing one or the other. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Right. It's up to her. She gets to decide. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Keep an open mind. Yeah. Dawn, thank you so much. You're welcome. For talking to me. Thanks for having me over. Of course. You can come over anytime. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Wonderful. I'll give you a key. Okay. <laughs> Dawn Landis, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, thank you, dear listener, for making it all the way through the end. Check out her new album, which is Meet Me at the River. 
buy it on vinyl, CD, download, go to a show if she comes to your town, or travel to go see a show. She's very good in concert, I would say. Thank you to Alex Stanton from Townspeople for doing our music on Basic Folk. Uh, Also, thanks to Laura McCarthy for her support in the podcast. And we'll see you again next week. Let's keep those New Year's resolutions. Let's keep them rolling. Why don't you make a new resolution every day? That sounds doable to me. A new resolution every day. You can check out my website for more information about me and the podcast, cindyhouse.net. Thank you to Janelle Gutierrez for designing that beautiful website. It just looks great. And we'll talk to you next week. Okay, bye.